We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Okay, everyone, I'm here with my first repeat guest. He is a esteemed grandmaster, and I'll get to introducing him in a second. But first, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who's supported the podcast. This is the one-year anniversary, believe it or not, of Perpetual Chess. So thank you to everyone who has listened to the podcast, told a friend, reviewed the podcast, uh, and most of all, of course, thanks to my guests. Because as I've said before, without my guests, this show would get very boring very quickly. So Mr. Feingold, Mr. Grandmaster, that's your cue to come on. How are you? Good, Ben. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on again. I'm excellent, and I'm happy to have you on. And the reason that I, you know, I'll be bringing in repeat guests, uh, not not super often, but, you know, every few weeks, every month, something like that. But the reason I felt like you should be the first is because you're the one whose life has changed the most that I'm aware of, at least. Uh, when we had you on in January, the uh, Chess Club and Scholastic Center of Atlanta was uh, but a twinkle in your eye. But now it has opened up. So how's business, Ben? 
Well, thanks for having me on again, Ben. You know, I thought I was listening to the podcast and I wasn't a guest when you said the esteemed guest. And I was like, <laughs> oh man, is Fiddler coming on? This will be great. <laughs> right. Like, who is it? And there's like me. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm actually on the podcast. Fiddler's um, busy drinking vodka after that amazing performance in uh, the Russian yeah. Championship. That was incredible. And, and my wife, Karen, who's the, um, the real owner of the Chess Center, she gets really excited when um, the, the players in their 40s and 50s are doing well. She's just recently turned 52 herself, and she, she doesn't think chess is a young man's game. She thinks older players can do well, and she's really excited when, when the higher-rated players who are a little older have good tournaments like, like Peter did. I believe Peter's 41, and this was his eighth Russian championship. But, um, well, it's, it's too bad you're interviewing me instead. I want to hear from Peter. But, yeah, well, um, <laughs> we'll try to track him down at some point. But uh, you're, um, you're, you're no slouch yourself. So, so, but tell us about the Chess Center, Ben. We're, we're eager to hear the updates. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Um, yeah, we, we spoke um, in January, and I guess February, maybe the first week was when it was on the podcast. And, uh, of course, uh, we had this idea about maybe in November to open a chess center in Atlanta. There used to be a chess center um, run by Thad Rogers, um, American Chess Promotions, and his company still exists and he still sells equipment and he he runs chess tournaments all the time. We're good friends with Thad. Um, And we said, well, there's no chess center in Atlanta. And now that, you know, we're here, let's let's open a chess center. And it took us almost a year to get our our vision to to reality. And that was um, an amazing transformation um, people who have been to the Chess Center, for the most part, don't realize what it looked like um, when we first got the place. I think um, maybe we signed the lease in February or March, and we opened September 9th this year, which was um, just over three months ago. Um, but there was a lot of work to be done to make it look reasonable and to get all the stuff. And there was um, a, a big uh, financial risk, of course, getting everything ready. And we're pretty happy so far with the first three months, obviously. There's been ups and downs, and there's been things that we didn't expect. Some things went better than expected. But um, right now, I guess the short version is we have about 150 members, and almost every weekend we have a chess tournament. And we're open six days a week, and we have classes, tournaments, camps. And, well, so far so good, Ben. Okay, good. So what, is, uh, what was the biggest pleasant surprise? Let's start with the good news. Well, this is funny. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever had Mike Klein on. He's, he'd be a good guest. Uh, my old roommate, yeah. Sooner or yeah. later, I'm going to um, tie him up yeah. and force him to come on, but I haven't yet. Wow, I, 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 I'm not sure if I can say what I want to say. Anyway, <laughs> we'll continue on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that about, didn't come out right. Anyway, yeah, go on. About, about two or three years ago, I was in Charlotte, the Charlotte Chess Center. Of course, of course, most of your listeners probably know me better from the St. Louis Chess Club. I did a couple of stints in Charlotte working at the Chess Center, which is owned by Peter Giannatos, who's a FIDE master, good friend of mine. And I was there, I would say, about three months um, in 2015 and 2016. And, uh, of course, I'd see my client occasionally. He lives in Charlotte. And uh, for one of my stints, Mike invited me to his school because they had, like, a teacher work day. And I'm sure you're familiar with this, having, you know, children of your own, where uh, there's no school because, you know, for whatever reason. And he said, those are really good days to have one day chess camps where you have some teaching, you have a little tournament and you can get a lot of kids to show up. And, um, he actually gave me this advice again when we were opening our chess center. I think he told me about it maybe in March or April. And so that's been the biggest pleasant surprise. We've had 
basically two vacations from school here. One was on Columbus Day um, and one was Thanksgiving week when a lot of the kids had the week off. And for those one day and three day camps, we had 30 and 35 kids come to our chess center. And that was obviously good financially. It introduced some kids to the chess center. And it was, you know, we, we, we hired the local teachers also to come teach us at the center. So that was, that was a very nice thing because you don't really know if you're going to have, you know, a camp during the school year, are you going to get five kids and you get 30 kids? So that was sort of nice. And we're actually having two more camps uh, coming up right now, um, right after Christmas, December 26th to 29th. And we're having one after the new year because the kids don't go back to school until somewhere between January 5th and 8th. So we're having another two-day camp. So we're pretty excited that um, our Scholastic Center is getting a lot of kids to show up, and they're really interested in chess here. Nice. Yeah, Scholastic Chess is such an important part of uh, any any chess club's business model, I think, or should be. And yeah, Mike's full of tips like that. I got that exact one when I, uh, a couple years ago, was, was getting back into teaching chess, and I've... Uh, mm-hmm picked his brain more than he would like I, I think and I actually you know he mentioned like the teacher planning days doing it at the school but of course like doing it at your chess center being that you actually have a brick and mortar facility it makes it makes even more sense and I'm sure uh, the parents appreciate it um, since they in a lot of cases are looking for child care on those days anyway exactly yeah and that was a, a very good tip and of course I mean our plan always was to have summer chess camps we have a place to have them and we're going to be much better known in the summer because we'll have been open for eight or nine months. But it was nice that we can get known to the schools pretty quickly by by having these one, two, and three-day camps during the school year. So, yeah, kudos to Mike Klein. He's uh, helpful not only that, but in other areas as well. Nice. Yeah, okay. And uh, what, what's been the biggest uh, negative surprise or the, the thing that's disappointed you so far? Well, there's a couple of things. I guess, I guess they're tied for first. We've had some what we call unrated scholastic tournaments, which we thought we'd introduce some kids to chess. And instead of all the rated tournaments kids go to, if kids are beginners and maybe they play in their school, but they're sort of afraid to play in a rated tournament, they haven't joined the USCF yet, we'll have an unrated tournament, which was pretty successful um, in St. Louis. But we we haven't found that to be successful. So we actually had to change our model. And um, our scholastic tournaments are all rated now. It seems the kids really like rated chess, but unrated chess they're not, not so thrilled with. So we stopped having unrated scholastic tournaments, which is unfortunate. Um, and also, being open every evening um, sort of cuts down your attendance. And we have a special problem here in Atlanta, which we sort of knew about, but it's a little bit worse than we expected, is, um, I don't know if you know, Ben, but the traffic situation here, especially during rush hour, isn't very good. Yeah, I, I, um, I knew that's where you were going. Yeah, it's not. It's true with a lot of cities, but I think especially Atlanta because we're so sprawled out. I mean, we're in we're in a northern suburb here in Roswell, and people who live in the city of Atlanta or they work there or maybe they go to school in in the western eastern suburbs, it could take them in rush hour over an hour to get here, and that cuts down on attendance, obviously. And one thing we noticed is on some nights, like Wednesday and Friday night, we'll get a lot of people at our chess center. But Tuesdays and Thursdays, it's it's almost dead here because we're not having an event where you would get a lot of people. We just want people to come play chess. And the issue is actually pretty interesting. Um, if you have something too early, people can't get to your chess center. So if you have something at 5 o'clock or 5.30 or 6 o'clock, people tell us, well, I can't get to your chess center, then there's too much traffic. If you have something too late, 7.30, 8 o'clock, the kids don't come because they got to get to bed. It's a school night. 
So we actually have all of our events on the weekdays at 7 p.m., and that sort of helps everybody. And we still have some complaints that it's too early and too late. Right, of course. From different people. So, of course, when I was in St. Louis, we didn't really have this issue because there were a lot of people in the area of the club anyway. There was walk-in traffic. And, of course, the, the traffic in St. Louis isn't quite as bad, which I noticed when I was there. When I was in St. Louis, I'm like, oh, this is great. I've, I've lived in Detroit. I've driven in Chicago and New York, and I'm used to, like, bad traffic. But, but wow, uh, in Atlanta... It's, it's something else because the city is so sprawled out. There's suburbs everywhere. There's traffic everywhere. And it really lasts for a long time. And, of course, this doesn't hurt our weekend attendance, but on the weeknights, it makes it difficult for some people. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I guess at least for you personally, you're probably uh, you're not traveling at peak hours to get there. It's just a matter of building it into your, your schedule for the, the people trying to come. That's right. And one of the, uh, this is my wife's idea. Uh, Karen wanted to make sure the chess center was actually near where we lived. So you know, the chess center anywhere, but if it was 10, 20, 30 miles away, it, it potentially could take us 90 minutes to get there. We live four miles from our chess center. So with no traffic, it takes about eight minutes. And if there's terrible traffic, it'll take 20. So it's not a big deal for us. Okay. Yeah, that's not bad at all. Um, sounds good. So overall, it sounds like business is good uh, and it'll continue to grow. So do you do any like uh, school outreach stuff? Like, do you have teachers at schools and um, like, how are you going to try to raise awareness? Like, obviously, you're well known, um, you know, uh, nationally and internationally in the chess world. But how do you raise awareness just in Atlanta? That's right. Probably the, the least well known I am is locally to right. the people who, who are playing in tournaments. Well, that's another issue we had, which I didn't really bring up because it's, it's sort of a, it's a good and a bad thing. It's, it's good for chess in Atlanta. It's not necessarily good for our chess center. But um, Atlanta has a lot of chess in the schools, and they actually have um, more than one organization that only goes into the schools and teaches chess. Um, obviously, there's Kid Chess, which I believe is in about 90 schools <laughs> in Metro wow. Atlanta. There's also Championship Chess, which also is in many schools. And there's friends of ours, like international master Carlos Perdomo, which is Chess Atlanta, and he's in many schools. So getting into schools isn't very easy because the schools already have chess, which is good. Um, my, my wife's children, uh, her, her younger son is eight years old, and he's rated 1,400. He goes to Fulton Science Academy, which, again, is very close to, to our chess center. It's probably uh, less than four miles. And they have a big chess program there. And even though International Master Carlos Perdomo was teaching there, they wanted to add some more classes. So I'm teaching a class there on Mondays. He's teaching on Fridays. And probably in total, there's about 60 kids that go to the classes. And probably between 15 and 20 have USCF ratings. And there was another school, um, I believe it was in, actually in Atlanta, in the city, that wanted me to teach there. And we're negotiating now. So it's sort of slow but steady because the the schools already have teachers. Um, what we do instead is people in the area who are masters, experts that we know, um, or even better, we have a list of them at our chess center who give chess lessons or chess classes, and we have contact information, and we have a whole sheet for that at our chess center. So anybody who comes and wants private lessons, maybe they can't come to the chess center, so they want to have it in their home. Maybe I'm too expensive for them. So we have a list of people who teach chess in the area, and that way, anybody who wants to get chess lessons, they have a list of people 
There's a lot of chess in the schools, and Atlanta's really good for kid chess. What we're trying to do is improve the overall level of the chess players and get more adult chess. And the kids isn't really a problem. Um, getting in the schools isn't our number one priority since they have that already. Of course, that's financially beneficial, and a lot of people talk to us about that because they assume that's where the money comes from. But right now, that's not our number one focus financially. But in the future, I think it'll grow over the years, and eventually we'll be in a lot of schools, but it'll take time. Right, yeah. And part of it is like, I mean, a lo- the way it works in a lot of schools, is, I mean, a lot of uh, metropolitan areas is, you know, uh, you have lower level fish chess players like me who who are on the ground and introduce as many kids as possible to chess. And that positions you for the ones who stick with it and, you know, uh, need need higher level instruction. Like that's where you can come in. And that's definitely like having so many kids interested in rated chess. Like you guys have the perfect place for that. See, your listeners who don't know you as well um, as I know you, they're thinking, oh, lower level fish. I guess Ben Johnson must be rated about 1,200. <laughs> but but I think I think you're uh, you're much stronger than you're letting on. There are a lot of people who teach chess um, in many different cities I've been in who, where even in the organization, somebody who's 14 or 1,500 is really at the, at the top of the organization strength-wise because most of the kids you're teaching are just absolute beginners and you're teaching them how the pieces move. And it's good to have like a good teacher as opposed to a strong chess player. But I'm sure that you're both Ben. I know you're a very strong chess player. Oh, that's um, dude, that's so sweet of you to say. The if last I, I remember, you were somewhere between twenty one fifty and twenty two hundred. Of course, yeah. this was twenty years ago. So now I'm not sure. But I, I, about, I know you're much stronger than you're letting on. About the same. Yeah, I've been I've been higher rated. I've been lower rated. But that's about where I am. But I remember some of your one minute displays back on Day Hill Road. So uh, you <laughs> know, in deference to you, I have to say I'm a weak player because I don't know if I ever took a game off of you. <laughs> Well, everything's relative, and of course, we must be related because our names are both Ben. Right. Okay, so I feel like we've gotten a good, uh, we got our finger on the pulse of the Atlanta Chess Club, and it sounds great. I mean, it's it's an inspiration for for anyone who's thinking of doing something similar in a different place, and I know that you were able to to draw on uh, people like Pierre Giannatos and Mike Klein and people who've uh, laid the groundwork for, for you. So, but Ben, let's zoom out and talk international chess. You're always um, weighing in on Twitter about like who's going to win this tournament, and you're always saying Wesley So. So, so <laughs> why is that? Well, this is funny. It seems like l- lately chess has been cyclical. Now, um, first we'll go to the to the Wesley So issue. Um, Wesley's a teammate of mine in the U.S. Chess League and the Pro Chess League. And as far as um, the, the the kind of person who you can you can easily root for, obviously Wesley So. He's very calm. He's a nice guy. He's you know basically just thanking God and Jesus when he wins, not right. saying how great he is, and and he's a very humble person. And he's, he's real easy to root for. Um, but, of course, since he was my teammate and we won, actually, the U.S. Chess League and the Pro Chess League while we were teammates, so I got, I got to root for my man. Um, now, uh, getting, getting away from the fact that I'm friends with Wesley and, and we're teammates, um, people, people have short memories. And so lately, probably in the last six months, Wesley hasn't really shown anything above the other 27 50 to 2850 super GMs. However, um, if we just go back um, even less than a year, but uh, last year, Wesley won basically every tournament and shot up to number two in the world while the other players weren't doing very much. For example, Wesley won the Sinkfield Cup in 2016. 
He then won the London Chess Classic and won the Grand Chester as a result. Then he won the Tata Steel Tournament in Vikanze, and then he won the U.S. Championship ahead of Hikaru and uh, Fabiano. And at this point in time, for these six or seven months, I believe he had some huge streak of not losing, something like 60, 70, 80 games in a row. That rings a bell. players <laughs> over 2,700 without losing. So at this point in time, it was clear to me who the best player in the world was. Conversely, everybody's favorite, Magnus Carlsen, if you look at Super Grandmaster tournaments, which I assume is important for those guys where they're playing each other, Magnus still hasn't won one. It's been 17, 18 months. And the only tournament he did win, which was USCF rated and was slow chess, was the tournament at Isle of Man, which is a very strong tournament, but it is a Swiss. Um, and so, I mean, there were a lot of strong players there, so winning that is, 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 a, is a great achievement. But I think even Magnus would, would, would agree um, the last year hasn't been his year. And I think rating-wise and score-wise, probably 2017 has been Magnus's worst year um, in the last five or six years. And it was clear to me in 2012, 2013, 2014, Magnus was clearly the best player in the world. There was no doubt about it. However, between 2015 and today, I don't think he's shown dominance over the other players except maybe in the field of online blitz and rapid chess where he's really crushing it. Yeah, um, well, live and, too. Right. Very surprisingly, because I, I always expect Magnus to win blitz and rapid tournaments. Um, the World Blitz and World Rapid last year, won by Karyakin and Ivanchuk, that really surprised me, that especially Ivanchuk could win over Magnus. That's, I mean, because Magnus, I think, really excels at those time controls, and I always expect him to win. And when it's a slow tournament, to be frank, I don't expect him to win. I mean, in 2012 to 14, I did expect him to win, but now I don't. Yeah. I think anybody can win. And I think the last six months, it seems like Aronian and MVL have really come on. And so the candidates tournament, which I guess this is a lead into, which has all those strong players, basically anybody could win. And it's funny. I remember reading, I think it was on Twitter, um, 538 had a, you know, like a, a spread of like who they thought would the odds of each player were. Right. And it was funny that the person with the worst odds was Karyakin, who, right. who played for the world championship last year. So yeah, it's tough, tough tournament. Yeah. But, and um, tough to yeah, handicap. I mean, I mean, I'm a big Wesley. So fan, he hasn't done well in the last four or five months. Although in the London chess classic, he didn't lose a game. He beat on on with black. He tied for third. So he's, he's still, he's still a great player. Yeah, and yeah, definitely can't count him out. And it is funny how short a memory people have with stuff like this. Um, so you so you mentioned the Pro Chess League, your old teammate Wesley. So um, so it's coming up next month, Ben. What's uh, what's on tap for you with that? Well, I, I moved to Atlanta, you know, about a little over a year ago, as you know, and um, I was still playing for St. Louis. And in fact, I was playing for St. Louis as a local player from my home in Atlanta, and. Many are you, are you allowed to say that? I am allowed to say that because I have a, I have St. Louis ties. Okay. They have, they change the rules every year. And in fact, um, a team in Pittsburgh asked me to play about a month ago. Shout out to Pittsburgh. And I was actually getting confused because some of their quote-unquote local players were my Michigan friends. Uh-huh. And I said, well, wait a minute. And they said, oh, yeah, the rules now are, they change the rules every year, that if you're within 250 or 350 miles, you're a local player. And I was like, wow. So... Anyway, 
Uh, ben, how could you pass up a chance to play for my uh, current hometown, the Pittsburgh Pawn Grabbers? That's correct. Okay, unfortunately, I won't be playing for them. Um, negotiations didn't go very well. I, I was offered no money, which was slightly less than I wanted. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I don't blame them for offering me nothing the way I play. So I'm playing for St. Louis, and I'm and actually the game that I'm quote-unquote famous for, and that was when I beat Mama Jarov with the Black Pieces. And that game was actually played in a hotel room in Michigan while I was visiting my family, and my daughter was in the room. And um, if you want to see how excited I was, you should interview her next. Oh, funny. So she'll never forget that scene. I'm like, I'm going to beat Mama Jarov. Come over here. And she's like, what? So that was pretty funny. Speaking of the um, candidates, he'll be interesting to watch. Exactly. And Mama Jarov right now is number three in the world at 27.99. And um, he, here's a guy who's been on fire basically since I beat him in the Pro Chess League. I mean, 20 minutes after I beat him, he gave Wesley So his first loss in the Pro Chess League in a really interesting game. And for the listeners who haven't seen that game, go find that game. That was an amazing game that Mama Drov won against Wesley So. And the match was already over, but they didn't play like it. There was a huge material disparity. Pawns were queening. Three pieces for a queen. Both kings were exposed. That was a very nice game. And... Well, Mamadjarov was winning a lot of tournaments since then. His rating went up, and he's going to be somebody to watch in the candidates. And he's a real fan favorite. Yeah, he is. he plays for a win with white and black. So he's one of my favorite players also. Yeah, mine too. And kind of like one of the least ballyhooed number threes in the world that I can remember yeah. in a while. So, yeah, sh- should be interesting. Um, so getting back to the Pro Chess League. So now that you're in Atlanta, uh, what? no more St. Louis. So what's going to happen? That's right. So... Um, uh, the Atlanta people have the Atlanta Kings, which has been in the U.S. Chess League forever. And we wanted to qualify for the Pro Chess League. There was a qualification event, which had a very unusual format, which I guess Pro Chess League, U.S. Chess League, and, and unusual format sort of goes together. And uh, our team in Atlanta, where we tried to qualify, uh, we had Gadir Gusenov, who some of your listeners will remember, lost um, in the first round against Magnus Carlsen in the ongoing chess.com tournament. Um, and I guess by the time this is on the air, this program will have known what happened in the Karyaka Nakamura match, which for us takes place tomorrow. Yes, so, but for them, okay, will be three days ago. Yeah. yeah, right. But um, Magnus B. Gusenov, who's a very good blitz player in the first round, he was our board one for Atlanta. Um, and then I was board two, I guess. I guess you could call me board two. Um, and then we had... Uh, uh, ben, his name is Ben. I can't think of his last name because we've only been friends for years. Ben Moon. It's all about the Benjamins. He was our fourth board. And even though I call myself our second board, uh, I'm not sure if our if uh, our other board, we're about the same rating. He's a local international master. And what's funny is I haven't seen him uh, here since I've moved here. The only time I saw him was at my chess center when we tried to qualify for the Pro Chess League. And we, he's about 24-70, and about a week after we played on the team to try to qualify, he was in St. Louis playing in a norm tournament. So that's very unusual. And his name is Daniel Gurevich. Right. And there used to be only one D. Gurevich in the U.S. who was good, but now there's two. Right. And um, we tried to qualify, and we did not qualify, unfortunately. And I guess I don't want to blame anybody, but i got to blame somebody. So we were expecting Gusenov to get a huge plus score because he's – you know, like 2660 feet A, and he's a great blitz player. But I believe he only got plus one in a 15-round tournament. So and it's all his fault. 
Yeah, basically, I got 50%, which was expected. Ben Moon, also 50%, did pretty well. Daniel Gurevich with plus one. We need to go send him to get something like plus six or plus seven. But, you know, we didn't. It was a very strong tournament. We didn't qualify. So I thought I would just watch the, the Pro Chess League this year, which will be fun to do. But instead, it looks like I'll be doing commentary for chess.com. Uh, I'll be doing probably the latest game, uh, the latest match, I should say. Um, I might start 9 p.m. Eastern, and I think I'll be doing the games where most of the teams are on the West Coast. Okay. So the teams in San Diego and San Francisco and, and those kind of guys. Um, I'll be doing commentary. I'm not sure if it's by myself or with a co-anchor, but we'll, we'll find out. And that's very exciting that, you know, they changed the time control to make it faster where everybody plays everybody. And also that there's basically games throughout the day. You're not just watching for three hours and stopping. You can... Every time zone in the world, from basically 9 a.m. Eastern to midnight Eastern, you can watch chess on chess.com and watch the Pro Chess League. And I'm glad I'll be part of it. I won't be playing and blundering like I did last year, but I'll be playing and blundering in my commentary, which is almost as good. Well, you're a natural-born commentator, so it might be, might be for the better. You uh, know, I've had many people, after watching me play chess, say I was a natural-born commentator. So, <laughs> after hearing you play chess, yeah. Exactly. Nice. All right. So, yeah, people, I'm sure, will, will be excited to hear that and uh, tune in for that. Um, so, Ben, I want to switch topics a little bit, and we have our first um, question from a listener to the podcast, um, Rick Holland. So I want to talk a little bit about chess history, because, and we'll get to, to your YouTube channel in a little bit, but I was watching your Rubenstein lecture. But anyway, this is related, so we'll start with this. Rick Holland asks, um, if Paul Morphy were to be transported to our time and convinced that chess isn't a waste of energy and given two years to bone up on modern theory, how well do you think he would do against Magnus, Fabiano, and Aronian? Also, what sort of a, odds could a blindfolded Morphy give to Simon Williams? Um, I'm just messing around. I love the ginger GM, says Rick. Wow, those are, those, are, those are good questions. Okay, well, I don't think it would take him two years, but um, assuming his opening preparation was the same as the players now, uh, I, I don't see any, any reason why at some point he wouldn't be the best player in the world. Um, he totally dominated when he played. And, I'm, of course, as peop, my listeners know, maybe your listeners don't know if they haven't heard me, probably most of them have, I'm really pro-Morphy and I'm anti the Morphy haters. Uh-huh. I've actually made videos trying to refute Morphy haters. Um, a lot of people say Morphy was, in today's standards, somewhere between 2,000 and 2,350 strength which is completely ridiculous. Um, Bobby Fischer, for example, said Morphy was the most accurate player that ever lived. Wow. Probably he wasn't 2,000 strength. And Morphy often would give blindfold simultaneouses, which I'm sure you do every day, Ben. All the time, yeah. Um, and, 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 and several of them were eight boards. So he would play eight boards at once simultaneously and win every game. So, so say, saying that he was not one of the greatest players ever lived is silly. And... I think Morphy would easily compete with the top players today and might even be better. So with this cap system, you know, I mean, I don't know if AlphaZero is going to change this or whatever, but, you know, with the, uh, the system that like chess.com has, and I know that there are a couple other algorithms where you can compare the, you know, the accuracy of a player's move to the, um, the best move overall. Right. Now, I know that's not a fair comparison across generations, but what if you compared him to his peers? Like, what if you compared the gap between Morphe and the second best player when he was playing as opposed to, to now? Like, do you think he was, uh, like, that much better back then? 
Yeah, and that that's actually why I'm so impressed with him because let, let's say you're in a closed system and you're you're let's say 1500 strength and everybody in your system is 1500 or less and over a period of two or three years by only playing them somehow you're 2300 this seems impossible because and basically you're a poker player if you're playing poker with the five worst poker players in the world and then you're like oh i'm better than them now i'm the best player in the world right you'll see there's a big difference when you play real poker players so morphe was so much better than everybody else i don't even understand how he did it how would you get to 26, 27, 2800 strength when the next best player was maybe 2200 strength. That just confuses me. And he was so much better, I think, than his contemporaries that this is astounding because the way to get good now, you could play chess on the internet, you can get chess lessons, you can take airplanes to chess tournaments, hmm. you can analyze your game with engines, you can get chess books and chess magazines, you can do all kinds of things to get better at chess. Um, what did he do to get better at chess? And the way that I want to get better at chess for my students is to play strong players. And so that was basically the only thing he could do was play strong players, and there weren't a lot of strong players. And I think Morphy was very lucky that his family, his uncle and his dad, were actually very good chess players. And I think that helped him get really good. I think if his family didn't play chess, he probably wouldn't have played at all. And when he traveled to Europe and beat everybody – and Staunton ran and hide, and, and, and rightfully so. That was good hiding. Um, then, I mean, it was clear that he was better than everybody else. And I think Morphe could probably give a simultaneous against the best players in the world and still be a favorite. And I believe he gave a five-board simultaneous when he was in Paris against the best players in the world, and he got a plus score. So his, his, the difference between him and his contemporaries was huge. And he didn't play for very long. I mean, he only played for a few years. Um, it's too bad that, as you pointed out, he if he came back now, we'd have to convince him to play chess. <laughs> um, and and I, I read a lot about Morphe recently. Um, other than fawning over him, I want to actually know something about him. And I didn't realize uh, in New York at one of these you know strong tournaments, he showed up to watch and he actually met Steinitz and they spoke. But Steinitz wanted to play Morphe, but Morphe wasn't playing anymore. But um, that that would have been interesting. And um, so he ducked, he ducked him. Yeah, for your listeners who don't know, um, Morphe and Steinitz had one opponent in common that they played often, and that was Adolf Anderson. Um, and you, you can check. You don't have to believe me. Morphe's record against Adolf Anderson was something like plus 20. And Steinitz's lifetime record against Anderson, Steinitz has a minus score. Okay. So, that's that's how good Morphe was. Okay, so I think as listeners can tell, Ben, you 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 know your chess history inside and out, and that's something I noticed um, watching your YouTube videos too. So that that made me wonder, like with so many talented kids, I know you were just at grade school nationals coaching. Yep. Um, do you think it's important for kids these days to know chess history? Well, I think it's important that you have a, a general understanding of what you're doing, and chess history is part of that. And I find a lot of kids don't have a knowledge of chess history. Um, and so if I try to talk about how openings originated or the players, for the most part, the kids are like, what? Who's that? Right. Um, unfortunately, some of the kids nowadays don't even know the contemporary chess players, which is sort of funny because there's so many good players now. And, you know, since the late 80s, early 90s, when everybody could leave and play chess from Eastern Europe and, and Soviet Russia, now there's so many 26, 2700 players 
even I don't know who some of them are. I'm right. like, wait a minute, who's that? How's that guy twenty six seventy? I never heard of him. But but um, I think it is important that you're immersed in the in the the chess history and chess itself, because otherwise you're you're lacking in in something that that your your competition knows that you don't. And um, the first time I learned this when I was in Belgium, which was a very long time ago, um, I met the Grandmaster Luke Winons, who I think was international master then, and he was a big proponent of everybody knowing E4, E5 from both sides to get like a classical education. And I was amazed because when he knew opening variations, he would actually show the history of the variation. He would say, this line was first played in this game, and then people realized you should play this way and then this way, and he would go up to now and say, now we play this way. And that really impressed me because I might have known the line and known what the best moves were, but I didn't know how it happened and how we learn from our mistakes. And I think um, for young kids who, who know a lot of theory, knowing the old theory and why it's not right is also very valuable. Okay. And so um, following up on that, so what was your, your impression? You, we just came, so especially for international listeners, I just want to explain um, – so Ben just came from the grade school nationals. There's two big scholastic nationals per year. There's one that's like slightly bigger in uh, around April or May that um, where the people play on teams across grades. So it could be like sixth and seventh graders, aka twelve and thirteen year olds, all on the same team. And then there's this one that is like grade by grade. Uh, every single age has their own national championship. And Ben was just down in Orlando coaching them. So uh, what did you think of uh, the kids you worked with? Well. That's interesting, Ben. I've never been to the grade nationals before. So other than the grade nationals, and I'll get back to that in a second, um, what they do is they have the elementary, junior high, and high school nationals. They're three separate events. And coincidentally, the junior high is going to be in Atlanta this year, um, oh, nice. April 6th to 8th. And I've been hired by the USCF to, to be the grandmaster there. I'll give simuls and lectures, and I'll spin in a circle and play bullets and stuff like that because I'm the local guy, so they hired the local guy. Um, but, so they have three of those tournaments, and then every four years, as you know, but maybe the listeners don't, they have a Super Nationals where all three of those events are in the same place at the same time. And that event normally gets between 5,000 and 6,000 kids, and then a crazy number of parents and coaches and other adults who come to, and siblings, and it's a, it's a real madhouse. So the Great Nationals is actually my first time there's 13 sections, one for each grade, K through 12. And it's funny, Ben, they still have teams, but the teams are smaller because it's within one grade. So you still can have a team, but it's actually less often. There's, there's less teams. And the same powerhouses from New York still win. Right. They still send teams in each grade. So that's, that's pretty funny. But, um, I mean, it was really nice because I hadn't been in Florida, to my recollection, since the 1994 U.S. Championship in Key West which is amazing to me. I mean, I can't believe I haven't been to Florida since then. And, it's, you know, I live in Georgia, so I can sort of walk over there. Um, and then the kids, they were really excited. They loved to play Blitz. They loved to play Bug House. They play chess between rounds. They get to meet their, their contemporaries by age and grade. That You get to see, okay, these are the best players in this grade, so we know in five years or ten years who the best players in the U.S. are going to be. And... Uh, I got to tell a story. It's, it doesn't make me look good, but it, I realized how old I was. Um, some of these kids wanted to play chess with me 
So I figured I'll give him the SmackDown. <laughs> and there was a Blitz tournament the day before the main event. And I played one minute because I like one minute. And I beat some kid. And this other kid said, oh, let me play. And he was taller than me, so I knew he was a high schooler. And he beat me the first game, and he beat me the second game. Wow. And I was like, wait a minute. What? I thought I was good at one minute. So um, eventually he went back. He, this was during the Blitz tournament. So he had to go play his five-minute round after we were playing. And then he came back. And I was like, what's your rating? Are you like 2450? And he said, and it was 2230. So I really felt like, wow, I guess I lost all my powers. <laughs> and this, was the wor- this is the worst part. This might even surprise you. He had no idea who I was. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not done. And when I told him who I was, he had no idea who I was. <laughs> That's I cr- said, well, I'm Grandmaster Ben Feingold and just nothing. Like, I never heard of you. Do you remember this okay. kid's name? Yes, but well, I'm, I'm not done. I have, this is a long story. Okay. This kid was in 11th grade. He won the Blitz tournament. He won the 11th grade. He won everything. He won every game everywhere. And he's from Illinois. And I'm like, I lived in St. Louis for seven years. You lived in Illinois your whole life. You've never heard of me. He's like, no. I don't know who you are. That's... I was like, what? Now, if he lived in California and maybe he just moved to the U.S., he's born in Illinois and lived there his whole life. I lived in a state bordering Illinois. And he's like, I don't know who you are. Now, when I told him who I was, then things worked out better for me. I guess he got scared because then I started beating him in one minute. But when he didn't know who I was, then, then I had no hope. So, so do you, anyway, his last name is Stevens. He's a uh, 11th grader. I guess he's about 2250 now. And his team actually, I believe, won the 11th grade also. Wow. Maybe they won right. the Blitz. Yeah. Well, sh- mean, well shout out to that kid. with good chess players, but yeah. I think he still never heard of me. So I don't know. Yeah. Okay. And and now he knows who you are. And and as I was mentioning earlier, I don't know how age has treated you. You know, with the one minute skills. But fifteen years ago, you were you were fierce. And I imagine you know you still know a thing or two about how to play one minute chess. So well, at the Singfield Cup two years ago, after the tournament, as you may know or you've been told, there's a lot of blitz and bug house um, with with the top players. And at one point, Alejandro Ramirez and I were just sitting around doing nothing. And we both realized we had never played a chess game against each other ever in any form. Hmm. So we're like, hey, let's play some blitz chess. And he's like, okay. So we sit down, and he's like, well, um, how much money should we play for? I'm like, I'm, I'm not playing for money. You know, he's too good. And um, in these events, people like to make side bets. So there was some side action. So we were playing one-minute chess, and uh, people were like, wait, wait, don't start. Don't start. Let's, do, let's get some side betting action. And this is like two years ago. So who wants to bet on Alejandro? And nobody, nobody bet on Alejandro. Nobody. There was like 10 people watching. And Grishuk, who didn't know me, Alexander Grishuk, he knew who I was, but he never saw me play chess. He said, oh, I'll bet on Alejandro. And then V Friedman said, have you ever seen Ben play one minute? And hmm. he said, no. And he says, you're going to see it now. <laughs> and so everybody bet Grishuk including MVL. MVL had never seen me play chess, but he wanted to bet everything on me. So he must have had good intel. Anyway, we played first to win five games, and I won 5-0. Wow. And, and people were very impressed. And MVL begged me to play him. He says, oh, can I play you? And I was like, sure. And then people were betting, and a friend of mine in St. Louis, he wanted to bet hundreds of dollars on me. And I said, no, don't do that. <laughs> He said, no, no, I've never seen you lose. I said, well, you're going to see it now. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's number three in the world. I'm not going to beat him. He says, oh, I don't care. I, I got faith in you. So he bet on me. 
I told him not to. Anyway, I won the first game very convincingly in one minute, and then he won the next four games. So I was down four to one. Then the next two games were very exciting. I won both of them where I had one second and he had zero. So the crowd, the crowd went wild. And I forgot what happened in the last game. I don't remember. Hmm. Probably that's, I lost. That's, a, that's pretty impressive. So I was yeah, gonna, he beat me five games to three, but I, I was pretty happy with that score. Yeah, I don't blame you. So what do you think the break-even point is, like in terms of time odds, like 40 seconds to a minute or something like that? With, with MVL? Yeah. yeah that, that's, well, now I don't know, but back then probably. I mean, that I was only every, three years ago. Year worse, you don't age that fast, do you? Yeah, yeah but every year getting worse. Yeah. Huh. So you have any other stories? I mean, you get to see all these people in St. Louis, and last time we had you on, you told a great story about Karpov. Any other stories about brushes with, uh, you know, the elites of chess, whether from you know the modern age or you know back back in our youths? Yeah, b- back in the day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I don't have a lot of stories about personally the top players recently because I've been here in Atlanta and I haven't I haven't gone to St. Louis in a while. So I think the last time. There was like GM after GM after GM in St. Louis was at the U.S. Championship where I did commentary. Um, I didn't do commentary for the the Sinkfield Cup uh, or the Junior, although the Junior wouldn't have super GMs um, last year. Um, so probably my, my good stories would be from, from long ago and far away. Well, I um, do want to hear you talk about living in Europe, too. I mean, yeah. in a related topic, like you lived in Belgium for four years. We also sure. have a, a question for you in a minute about uh, time in Russia. So. Anyway, right, let me give you, let me give, I'll give you a European story. I'll think about it while I'm telling you another story. A couple of years ago, uh, at the, the Singfield Cup, um, they were getting the, uh, what do you call it, appeals committee going. And they said, okay, you're on the appeals committee to like Yasser. And then somebody else was on the appeals committee. Then they said, okay, Malcolm Payne. And Malcolm Payne, who's the organizer of the London Chess Classic, he said, well, I can't be on the appeals committee. I'm, I'm going back to London in a couple of days. So I'm not going to be here. So they're like, okay. And they're looking around the room and Tony Rich saw me. He said, oh, okay, how about you, Ben? I said, yeah, I'll do it. And I was doing commentary, of course. And he said, do any of the players have any objection to Ben being on the appeals committee? And which player spoke up is very surprising. Everybody was surprised. I like this story already, but yeah, I'm, I, I don't. Think, I think if you guessed, this would be the last person you would guess. Okay, Fabiano? No. Magnus Carlsen. Oh, really? Magnus says, he says, well, I have, he says, I have no objection to Ben being on the appeals committee, but I do have an objection to Ben. <laughs> and then everybody laughed. And then, so I was on the appeals committee because he didn't object to that. And then Tony was furious. He was like, why? I said, well, he was kidding. It's a joke. He says, what? Rawr. He was like <laughs> mad at that Magnus made a joke. And I'm like, that was, that was funny. What do you mean? Yeah, and it sounds like okay. he knows your personality, that, too. That was hilarious. Was yeah. Then later in the tournament, when the tournament ended, a lot of times the players are sort of hanging out and sitting around doing nothing. And so I happened to be at the same table as Magnus. And um, I don't know how it started, but I just, showed, I just started showing Magnus stuff. I'm like, here's a game I won 10 years ago. Here's this game. Here's some puzzles. He was solving puzzles. Then he showed me a game. So I don't know. It was it was a fun moment, like hanging out with the best players in the world. You get to do that sometimes when you're, especially in St. Louis. Yeah. I mean that's that's been a real boon, not just to chess in America, but you know when I was a kid and you wanted to see the best players in the world, you you bought a chess book and you hope there was a picture in there. Right. And and now you just you could be in St. Louis when there's no tournament going on 
and you can see five grandmasters walk in. Right. So, you know, for the average chess player, and well, okay, another story that St. Louis really, I'll go back to Europe, was uh, I was at a Qdoba in St. Louis, maybe eight miles from the chess club, just in a suburb. And normally when I'm in a fast food place, I'm the highest rated player. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the Webster team walked in. <laughs> so I was I was not the highest rated player, yeah. um, but I, I was in the top ten. Okay. Um, yeah, Europe. My favorite story from Europe. Um, this I consider this my greatest chess accomplishment. Is I was at Tilburg when Tilburg had the Super GM tournaments, and again, your listeners can look this game up. I believe it was 1990 or 1991. If I had to bet, I would say 90. There was a game between Karpov and Kasparov. This was a double round robin. This was the game Kasparov was white, and it was a scotch. And at some point early in the game, maybe move 12 or 13, Kasparov sacrificed the pawn with e5, e6. It was a brilliant move. He won a brilliant game. When the game was ending, it was about to finish, I said, well, I'm going to go to the Skittles room. They're going to analyze, and I'll sit next to them. Now, it turned out there were two Skittles rooms. So I went to one Skittles room, and I destroyed it. I threw all the pieces on the ground and I closed the door. Okay. Then I went to the other Skittles room <laughs> where there were two chess sets because there's only eight players in the tournament. And I put one chess set on the ground and I sat next to the other chess set. Five minutes later, Karpov and Kasparov walked in. They looked around, sat next to me, and about 80 people followed them. That's diabolical, were, Ben. That's funny. They, they were standing on top of each other to watch the analysis and nobody said anything. Nobody said, oh, what about this move? I didn't say anything. And Karpov said very little, and Kasparov just did variation after variation after variation. And I was, I was an inch from him. It was really exciting. And when the game ended, when the analysis ended, I wrote a report for the tournament for Chess Life, and I annotated that game, and my annotations were really good. I had yeah. some good annotations. <laughs> I bet, yeah, your analysis and, and was very crisp. There, yeah, th- that's right. And there was one variation Kasparov game, which I gave, which I thought was wrong. And a couple of days later, I saw Karpov sitting by himself in a room analyzing a game for the informator, and I asked him about it. And I said, "Hey, when you were analyzing, Kasparov said this, but can't you go here?" And Karpov said to me, "If I go there, then..." And then he gave like a twenty move variation off the top of his head. Wow! And I was like, and I was like, oh. Amazing. Thank you, Ben. That was, that was awesome. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, they put me in my place. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, one thing I, I noticed in your games is you are able, like you show on your YouTube channel, um, which by the way, for listeners, I think a lot of listeners will know, but you, you moved. You've got your own uh, Atlanta Chess Club YouTube channel where you show some of your lectures and they're, they're great, of course. Um, but you show a lot of, in addition to like contemporary games and, you know, theme lessons, you show some of your older games. So I was curious, like, how well do you recall, say, a game, like a random game you played 20 years ago? Well, a random game, I won't recall very well, but there are specific games where I actually know the whole game and other things about the game, like the notes and things that should have happened. Of course, there's the, there's the old joke, which we've been telling for years, let me show you my game with Gelfand. So um, I've shown my game with Gelfand so often that now it's considered a punishment if I show you the game. <laughs> so if the kids aren't behaving well in the chess camp, I threaten them. Said, oh, you behave or I'm going to show my game with Gelfand, and they shut right up. And they're like, yes, sir. That's... Um, so if, if I show you a game I played in the 80s or 90s, I'll, I'll have a recollection of the result and what was going on during the game. But the exact moves, probably I wouldn't know, unless, again, I mean, when I was playing Boris Gelfand and I won, that was a shocking event. 
So I remember that. Um, oh. And there's other games that I remember that I really like throughout throughout the years where I, I could show you the game, um, like a win I had against Balashov, where I sacrificed my queen at the end, or my game with uh, Fidel Corrales Jimenez from five or six years ago at the St. Louis Club, which was a really nice game where I made a lot of sacrifices. But a general game, I'll know the results and what color I had and what tournament it was. But showing you move after move, that would be more in the Kasparov realm than me. Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better about my, <laughs> my inability to remember my old, my old games. A little bit better, not, not a lot better, but, <laughs> but I'll take it. Um, okay, so uh, another question from a listener. Uh, sorry, let me just pull it up because I forgot to put it on my Word document. Uh, this is how the sausage gets made on a perpetual chess. Uh, okay, so from Sanat Singhai, he's, first of all, he says, by the way, your match with Simon Williams was hilarious. So that's another topic we need to hit before I, I let you escape. Uh, sure. But here's his actual question. Uh, what did you learn from your trip to Russia when you were 14, chess or otherwise? Yeah, that's actually a very long, complicated story. Um, going to the Soviet Union in 1984 is not as simple as you might think. Um, and especially when I was 14, and we actually had to get like a, a U.S. senator involved to get me a visa to go to, to, go to the Soviet Union. Um, they were having a chess seminar with um, kids and teenagers and some young adults from all over the world, and a lot of the great Soviet players were, were teaching, uh, Smyslov, Swayton, Gufeld, Polgayevsky. Um, that's off the top of my head. There were probably four or five more. Bagirov. Um, man, it was a long time ago. Sorry, I can't remember everybody. Um, I think Petrosian was supposed to come, but he was very sick, and I think he died the next year. Um, but anyway, that was very exciting because, you know, I'm going abroad. I'm going to a country where Americans don't go. Now it's a lot easier, of course. And my first memory of that was when we landed in the airport in Moscow, and me and my, my friend Joey Waxman, who doesn't play chess anymore, but he was also like an expert master and same age as me, 14, um, we got to the passport control, you know, customs, and they saw the passport, and the visa said it was a sport visa. And the guy said, sport? What sport? And I said, chess. And they said, oh. And I remember them pushing us to the side. We had to stand there while the whole line went in front of us. And the guy made several phone calls on different colored phones. Hmm. He was on three phones at once. And one was a yellow phone, one was a red phone, one was a green phone. And, and my, another recollection, which I guess most people wouldn't have, there were two French girls who must have been in their early 20s. And whenever they were asked a question, they would laugh in response. That was their answer. Because they didn't know what the guy was speaking Russian. They didn't know. And after <laughs> laughing at the guy several times, he said, okay, you can go. <laughs> now, that's all I had to do was laugh at the guy, but instead I answered his questions. Um, that was an amazing experience, looking at chess and playing chess with grandmasters and IMs and, and people my own age who I would later meet, you know, meet in tournaments. Um, in that event... Uh, I drew with um, Krogius, there's another name, uh, in a simul, and I beat Smyslov in a simul. So that was exciting. And, you know, we looked at chess every day. My best recollection from Moscow, from the lectures, Paul Gajewski was lecturing, and he showed a game that he lost to John Spielman, where Paul Gajewski was better, and then he, like, made some mistakes. And he's speaking in Russian, even though he speaks English, and there was a translator. And the translator would translate. So Paul Gajewski would speak for like 15, 20 seconds, and the guy would translate. At some point during the, the lecture, Paul Gajewski was getting madder and madder because he lost. And 
he got furious and he started yelling, you know, at himself. I can't believe I, whatever, I don't know what he was saying, it was Russian. So he was yelling and yelling and yelling and he never stopped. He forgot to let the guy translate. So he spoke for about three or four minutes straight and then he stopped and he looked at the translator like, oh wait, I forgot. <laughs> and the translator looked at him and he looked at the audience and he says, um, here I made a mistake. <laughs> that was the translation of three minutes of yelling at himself. He was really mad. So Paul Gayevsky was a great guy. I met him later in, in, um, in Hastings. That's right. And we played bridge together. Oh, and nice. He was a really great analyst, great chess player, great guy. And he died too young. But I mean, meeting all these players in Europe, living in Europe, getting married in Europe and um, getting better at chess in Europe. That was a, a real, um, well, it was a life experience that I'll never forget. And then I'm glad I did it. Yeah, I mean, it may not be as strictly indispensable for one's chess development as it used to be, but from a you know from a personal development standpoint, I think it would still be for any young chess players a, a great experience sure. to to at least uh, visit, if not live there. Um, okay, so Simon Williams, everybody loved that match, Ben. It was quite entertaining, and you managed you managed to do okay for yourself. So, uh, any anything else like that in the pipeline? You think a, a very suspicious match. Um, <laughs> Well, of course, I know that Danny has some interest in having a team match, a team trash-talking match. So we would probably have, you know, Great Britain versus the Colonies. We nice. Could have, <laughs> we could have me and Danny against, um, against again, Simon, and maybe uh, another renowned trash-talker, Lawrence Trash. I was going to suggest him, yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I think I would be fourth in the, in the trash-talking. No, the don't, sell yourself, don't sell yourself so short. Maybe, maybe first in chess, but last in trash-talking. Um, yeah, of course. There's a lot of people who make videos online and who make I have a lot of followers, like you know Simon Williams and myself. Obviously, John Bartholomew is a John, now, John's to too nice John though. Yeah, he, he's too nice. Yeah. So I mean, I can't imagine John sitting there swearing at me. I mean, I'm sure he could do it, but 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 um, there's a lot of people who make a lot of great content on the internet, and it's you know free for people who want to watch. My son started doing that recently, and he's building a following. But but I mean. Uh, of course, I'd be interested in playing other matches. The problem is, you know, Chess.com has has Magnus Carlsen and Sergei Karyakin and Hikaru Nakamura, uh, Nepomniachtchi, Grishuk. So it's hard for people to get interested in watching me play chess because, you know, they want to see the best players in the world. But I think the match was really entertaining, and it was pretty close. It wasn't very one-sided. And instead of having two 2,800 players play, having any two people play that are similar in rating would be interesting to watch. And the lower rated the players are, like me and Simon, the more mistakes there are and the more fun it is. Yeah, relatable. So that's not, yeah, that's, that's not bad either. And, of course, there was some trash talking as, as required, but um, we didn't mind doing that. Yeah, was, you guys are natural. That was fun for everybody. I'm, I'm, of course, I'm willing to do it again in the future, but, you know, we, sort of like in the WWE, we got to find, find somebody I can trash talk to. Right. Well, you guys got some healthy donations for that match, too. It was uh, That's right. When it started, we were going to get a few hundred dollars, and then... A friend of mine who lives in Iowa, who's a frequent visitor at the St. Louis Chess Club, Thomas Gall, who's an A player in his own right, he donated money for trash talking in for the match. And we had a company that sponsored, I think, $2,000. So there was actually a huge prize fund in that match. And um, I didn't want the trash talking to go down because if there's too much money for winning the event, then we're going to trash talk less. But I don't think that stopped us. I think it was still, still good for the audience and... Um, maybe Simon was getting mad during the, I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell if, if it's acting or not at some point, but, right. um, but yeah, I mean, we haven't really spoken much since then. So I don't know if he's still mad, but, um, well, 
you know what the old saying, don't get mad, get even. Yeah. So maybe there'll be Feingold Williams too, and maybe there'll be less drinking this time and less swearing and more good chess playing. I don't know about the less swearing, but uh, well, but yeah, maybe less drinking if he wants to uh, get his revenge. Exactly. Or maybe I have to drink more. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Tea. Yeah. Unsweetened iced tea at that. Not yeah. Sugar. Yeah. It's not a fair fight. Um, exactly. So yeah, so tying things up and let's uh, talk about your YouTube channel. So you get, I mean, I'm amazed you get like tons of views. You know, it's only been in existence for like a month, six weeks. You'll have like 17,000 views on random lectures. Your wife does an awesome job producing it, making you look very professional. Um, well, thank you. So was it a hard decision to put it online? Like, do you feel like you're giving away the content that you, you know, produce at Atlanta or is it like a no, no brainer for you? No, that was that was a no brainer. Um, it's difficult for my wife to to edit the videos because she actually has about 50 things that she does for the club. And that's just one of them. Wow. Um, she... I mean, so people are like, why aren't the videos coming up? And I'm like, well, my wife has two kids that are both in school. <laughs> right. Uh, and they're they're eight and 14 years old. And she also has to take care of me because I'm like a little kid mm-hmm. and she has to make all the flyers at the club. She cleans the club. She helps run the tournaments. She does the website um, and she does a million other things with, you know, PayPal and Shopify and everything else. So basically she's working 24 hours a day at the club and make, you know, and basically I've made about 40 videos so far and I think five of them are on our site. And of course I have over a hundred on my own personal YouTube page. There's more than a hundred on the St. Louis site. Chess.com has them, Chess Kid, ICC. There's a lot of videos of me online. So she tries to put one up every two or three weeks. Um, but as you said, there's a lot of editing, and she tries to make it look nice and very professional. And that's not her forte, so she has to work hard at it. And I think it's gotten a really good response. People like the videos. And, you know, at, during, maybe during the, the, the holiday vacation, she'll put a couple more up so we can you know, get some more holiday donations, as they say. Right. But, um no, I really like putting videos online and getting a following for the club and introducing people to chess. And I've had a lot of people, this may surprise you, it still surprises me. They actually watch my YouTube videos. They don't know how to play chess. Oh, they really? Like the videos. Well, your jokes yeah, are funny. Online. I was going to ask you, do you have yeah. like comedy influences? Well, there are some comedians I like, but I think for the most part, they're either going to go to jail or they're in a lot of trouble now. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the times we live in. I can't believe I'm not in trouble. Yeah, so, sad but I true. Mean, yeah, obviously I'm a, I'm a big Louis C.K. fan, but I can't really do a lot of his material on my page because I I would get in trouble. Yeah, um, and I, obviously with his personal life, you know, being in, in tatters now. But I guess that's everybody. Yeah, I, I like a lot of different comedians. I like Sarah Silverman. I like Louis C.K. I like Dave Chappelle a lot. It's too bad Dave Chappelle basically quit his show. Um, Chris Rock is okay. I actually saw him in Toronto. So there's a lot of comedians that I like. Um, obviously I'm nowhere near as funny as they are, but. Um, I actually have a friend who is about 1350. I don't want to insult him if he's listening. And he's a professional comedian and he's a comedy writer and he's written for like the Emmys and the Oscars and he does stand up. And um, I, uh, I mean, he told me like I, I give a really funny presentation. He saw me in Vegas. He was doing some shows in Vegas and he came to the National Open and watched some of my lectures a few years ago. And um he wanted to do some kind of comedy chess show in St. Louis, but it never panned out where there was chess talking, but there was also, you know, some comedy thrown in to make it interesting for the audience. So, of course, you know, chess obviously can be boring if you're watching, playing or or listening to it. So I try to make it less boring and especially for the kids. I mean, lecturing to an hour to kids who are between like five and ten years old. Man, if I was that age, I wouldn't want to listen to me for an hour. So 
you got to throw in some jokes occasionally, make it seem funny, make it interesting, so you don't lose your audience. And I think for the most part, it's worked out. Nice. So do you have any advice? Like, if we don't feel like we're, like, naturally funny, but we are aware of the fact that you need to be entertaining in order to hold your audience, like, how do we get better at it? Yeah, I think basically not droning on and on. Mm-hmm. If you're – a lot of people are like, now, in this position, let me tell you the 12 important features. I'm like, I don't want to know that. Right. Like, I want to know – like, tell me one important feature, then tell me how Paul Morphy hung his queen once because he was drunk. That's right, what I want to exactly. Not to be necessarily funny, but you can tell something interesting that may or may not be related to the position to keep the listener interested. And that way, they're not just like, oh, this is like every other chess lecture, I'm falling asleep. And even whether you like my lectures or you don't, there's a lot of people who don't, obviously, you're not going to fall asleep. And I remember learning this very valuable lesson when I was a teenager I saw a a trivia online, not online, on on television. It said the most popular and the least popular sportscaster is Howard Cosell. And I (laughs) was like, he's the most popular and the least popular. I didn't think he could do that. Yeah, well, as long as you evoke strong feelings, you know, you'll be okay. I think think I've done that. I think the least popular for sure. (laughs) And even though some people might like John Bartholomew more than me or Yasser or Var, I'm, I'm also pretty popular as well. But obviously, the least popular, I got them crushed on that. Yeah, Nobody I, hates those guys like they hate me. Yeah, I Googled you, uh, you know, in preparation for this interview, and something like the number four hit was like a chess.com thread, why is Ben Feingold so obnoxious? And, and I have right. to say, as someone who knows you, I was thinking, hey, he's not obnoxious, you know. <laughs> um, you know, not a shrinking violet, but, you know, entertaining to be around. I definitely wouldn't call you obnoxious. Okay, I, Ben. I've been called worse. <laughs> um, by your friends, no less. Exactly. Okay, so Ben, last question because uh, we got to get out of here, unfortunately. But um, so last time I was on, I don't think I got book recommendations from you. Um, so any any chess or otherwise uh, books that you recommend to students or people, uh, well, non-students? I'm, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a big book fan, and I I don't necessarily like opening books. I think the best books for people who are trying to get better are like general books that you could find written by, let's say, Yasser or Jeremy Silman that will try to improve your game overall. Because if you want to do tactics, you don't have to buy a tactics book. You can do millions online at different sites. And if you want to get good at an opening, I think one thing to do is just play the opening a lot. You can play it in some fun blitz games. You can analyze it on your own. You can get experience. But I think general principles and learning how to play chess better overall, which is basically most of Jeremy Silman's books and some of Yasser's books, and I'm sure there's other books like that, there's um, the new in chess book, like Guide to Improvement. Those are the kind of books I recommend for my students, which will make you play overall better chess and not just focus on one thing. If you focus on one thing, that's going to be about 2% of your game, and that's not going to help very much. But I think getting better overall and understanding different kinds of positions, that's how you get better at chess. It's funny, Ben. Uh, the, the guest who preceded you was I am, I am Andre Ostrowski. He's about 24, 50 feet, eh? mm-hmm. And he yeah. gave the exact opposite advice. He said... Uh, awesome. He said, uh, you know, you should... You should Pick one thing and then like spend a month on it, basically. Um, and it's it's funny because I don't think either of you are right or wrong. It just goes to show you that there's you know, as long as you're studying and as long as you're you know focusing when you do it, I think that there's there's more than one way to skin a cat. Right. And I get this. I was well, a vegetarian. I, I I get this a lot from my students. What should I do? And I tell them basically that advice is you do what you like to do. If some teacher tells you you should study queen and pawn endings, and after five minutes you want to commit suicide, you're studying the wrong thing. Right. When you're studying chess, 
you should do something that you like to do. And if you're getting bored of it, then study something else. Yeah. And just keep doing it. You can change it up and make it interesting instead of tedious and boring where you have to do one thing. And I don't want my students to do one thing and think that they have to do it. If they love doing it, that's fine. And I think the love of chess is what you have to instill in your student, and that makes them get better. Excellent advice. Okay, well, Ben, um, before we uh, move on, anything else you want to say, or are we good to go here? No, we're good. I wanted to mention one more thing about the center that I forgot. One of the biggest surprises we had, when we opened the center on September 9th, we had a grand opening blitz tournament, and we expected 30 to 35 people, and we got 74 people for the blitz tournament. And we probably had about 50 who were just there to watch. So our grand opening was, was our best day ever, and it showed there was a lot of excitement in chess here in Atlanta. And sort of like St. Louis, when they opened the chess center, I know Rex's vision was to encourage other cities and places to open chess centers and popularize chess. And I hope that because of the chess center in Charlotte, because of our chess center, because of the great one in St. Louis, um, other places open chess centers also, and that we can have chess centers like this all over the country. And I hope we're doing a good job exposing chess to everybody and making everybody love chess. Yeah, I think you are. And, and you know, having known you a long time, Ben, it's, it's good to see that, that you're, you're making a, a good living for yourself because I know that, like, as a chess professional, you had some lean years, and it can be hard to avoid lean years, especially, like, back in the day. So it's really good to see you spread your wings. And, uh, yeah, exciting stuff. You're the first guy that's ever said Ben Feingold and lean in the same sentence. Good job, Ben. <laughs> well done. I, I, but speaking of which, I didn't know you were a vegetarian. Um, so. Really? I've been a vegetarian for 31 years. Oh, wow. I really didn't know that? No. Yeah, I think, you, I think uh, you forgot. My main memory was you drinking Diet Coke. Um, oh, yeah. I have, it's funny. I haven't had soda in about 20 years. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I used to drink a lot of Diet Coke. I was worse than Trump. Yeah. Wow, that's the first time I've heard that sentence. Worse than Trump. That's wow. true. Yeah, and we managed Amazing. to not to not say his name, so we'll we'll leave it there. Thanks a lot, Ben. I think I think everyone knows how to track you down, so we won't uh won't do our usual spiel. But thanks a lot for coming on, and we look forward to uh, more updates and more success for the uh, Atlanta Chess Center. Thanks a lot, Ben. Your perpetual podcast is great. Everybody should listen to all of them. They're exciting. You have great guests, and I look forward to more in the future. Thanks to everyone who supports Perpetual Chess. I spend about five hours a week on each episode, and even though I love doing the show, it can be hard to find the time. Donations from listeners make a huge difference and make Perpetual Chess a lot more sustainable. Special shout out to my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners. They are Adrian Gutierrez, Chris Wainscott, Coach Stage Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, Jason Dunbar, Jennifer Valens, John Fernandez, Jen Shahadi, Jen Scream, Johnny McMenamin, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Galapakrishnan, Matthew Tedesco, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Zorchek, Tatia Abrahamian, Tim Seymour, Todd Bryant, and Zhao Chang. I'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks, everyone. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.